And now, an ad from Dad. <clears throat> All right. Save money on car insurance when you bundle home and auto with Progressive. Can I take these off? All right. What is this? This looks good. Wow. That's well made. Where did you get this? I'm talking to you with the hair. Yeah, where did you get this? It's good stuff. That's solid. That's not veneer. That's solid stuff. Progressive can't save you from becoming your parents, but we can save you money when you bundle home and auto. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discounts not available in all states or situations. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Creating a Family. Talk about infertility and adoption. We're a weekly radio show, podcast, and to make sure that you automatically hear about each episode, subscribe to our show at either iTunes or on the radio page of our site, creatingafamily.org slash radio show. Today's show will be on considering single motherhood. I'm Dawn Davenport. I'm the director of Creating a Family. We're a nonprofit providing education and support for adoption and infertility, and you can find us online at creatingafamily.org. The Creating a Family radio show is underwritten by our corporate sponsor, Faring Pharmaceutical. Faring has a Heart Plus pharmacy savings card, which helps patients, both cash-paying and insured, save money on their fertility medications. To get more information on the Heart Plus pharmacy savings card, talk with your doctor, or visit the Faring website at faringfertility.com slash heart. Or if you are a technophobe, uh, you can give them a call at 1-888-FARING, F-E-R-R-I-N-G. We primarily keep in touch with our audience through our twice-weekly e-newsletter. We let you know about the latest developments in infertility and adoption, as well as the upcoming week's blog and show topic. To get more information, you can sign up for our weekly newsletter, on any page of our website, creatingafamily.org. I blog on topics of interest to those involved with either adoption or infertility three times a week. And a recent blog that you might enjoy was yesterday's blog on the impact of the Internet on adoption. Uh, As you can imagine, it has had a huge impact, and we talk about both the positive and the negative. This show, as well as all the resources provided by Creating a Family, could not happen without the generous support of our gold sponsors, including... Fairfax Cryobank. Fairfax has been a leader in sperm donation for over 25 years and is dedicated to supplying updated, verified, and accurate medical and personal information on their donors. Only one in 200 applicants make it through their screening process to become a donor. We also have All Blessings International, an adoption agency with offices in Missouri, Kentucky, and they work with families throughout the U.S. placing children from Congo, Haiti, Hong Kong, Latvia, Taiwan, and El Salvador. They also have a domestic infant program. And we have independent adoption centers whose mission is to provide open adoption placement and counseling to birth and adoptive families. They work with families in all 50 states and are fully licensed in California, New York, Florida, let's see, Texas, and more. You can get more information about all of our sponsors by clicking on their logo, which is on the right-hand side of our website. Yes, all right. Now, today's show, as I mentioned, is going to be on considering becoming a single mom. Should you become a single mother, what are your, other, what are your options, and how to raise healthy, happy kids as a single parent? Our guests are Lee Varone. She is a clinical social worker single adoptive mom of two and author of two books for single people interested in adopting. Those books are Adopting on Your Own, The Complete Guide to Adopting as a Single Parent, and Single Adoptive Parents, Our Stories. Uh, We also have Dr. Michelle Audi. She is the laboratory director for Fairfax Cryobank, and Mickey Morissette. She is the founder of ChoiceMoms.org. She is a single mom of two by donor sperm, and she is author of Choosing Single Motherhood. Welcome, Michelle, Lee, and Mickey to Creating a Family. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I am looking forward to this show. We are we're going to more or less divide the show into three parts, as, as uh, our audience probably knows. I I outlined the show more or less based on the questions that came in and the way the questions came in. We uh, the first we're going to be talking about using donor sperm to become a single mom. Then we're going to be talking about adopting as a single. And then we're going to be talking about raising kids alone. All right, so kind of following that order, I'm going to start with a question from Bettina. She says, wow, the timing of this show couldn't be better. I am considering breaking up with my partner because she does not want to become a mother, and I do. I am trying to think through all my options to become a single mom, but 
Right now, I think I'm going to do donor sperm. Can you ask your guest to talk about how you select a donor? I've heard you talk about using a sperm bank, but can you tell me more about how to go about choosing a donor and what to look for? Okay, Michelle, let's start with you. And she's uh, she's kind of asked two questions, but they're all uh, uh, she's asked about the process of of using a, a sperm from a sperm bank. But she's also asked about how to select a donor. Let's reverse those questions and talk first okay. about the process of of, of using uh, sperm from a sperm bank, and, and then uh, let's move into uh, talking about choosing a donor. Okay, great. So the first part in terms of how to use the sperm from a sperm bank, once you purchase the sperm, you're going to have that shipped to your physician's office um, where you will have already met with your doctor to assess your fertility and find out exactly what kind of sperm you need to buy because there are different preparation types that are available. Um, And at that point, the doctor will have told you not only what type of sperm to purchase but how many vials. Excuse me. You can have the inseminations done at your physician's office or um, with physician consent. You could potentially do an insemination at home. Um, For most single women, they're going to want to do this in the doctor's office and have the doctor perform the insemination in the office for them. Um, Unless you are undergoing the route of IVF, which would then mean you have to go through the cycle and harvest your eggs, and then they would use the sperm to fertilize the eggs and then complete an embryo transfer. It all is really dependent on the individual's fertility, and that's assessed by their physician. Okay, and and for the and it goes without saying that if you've got fertility problems on top of of, of not having sperm, uh, then yeah. uh, then that's kind of a different show. Of course, we've done tons of shows on on mm-hmm. your options for fertility treatment. Um, Michelle, what type of physician? You mentioned that it would be done in a physician's office. So if there's a single woman, uh, Bettina, for instance, or someone else who is considering becoming, um, is considering um, uh, trying to get pregnant as a single woman, what type of physician would she go to? Well, the first step would be just to to have a regular OB appointment, the OB-GYN appointment, and have the initial assessment done. If there was anything they needed to do, they would be working then with a reproductive endocrinologist if there were any fertility issues. And do, as far as you know, do most OB-GYNs do artificial insemination? Many do. Um, Some refer out to, you know, different clinics or or. Uh, two specific fertility clinics. Some do, some OBs will do the inseminations right in their in their offices. It's again, it's very individual to the practices, and the individual should have that conversation with their doctor. And that they can actually find find out via a phone call. Although mm-hmm. um, they're going to want before they purchase the sperm to have a conversation with their doctor. Correct. So they may as well just make their appointment with their regular OBGYN and have the conversation there. Right. Um, You mentioned that there were different preparations of sperm depending upon um, what? What does it depend upon and and, and how would a doctor be able to help you figure out what type of preparation you need? Right. So most sperm banks will offer various sperm preparations. One is the IUI, which is intrauterine insemination preparation, which is a washed sample. That is used for an intrauterine insemination where the catheter is placed through the cervix directly into the uterus. And the reason it's a wash sample is they have to wash out the seminal fluid because seminal fluid is not typically in a quote-unquote traditional um uh, situation, seminal fluid doesn't actually enter through the uterus through the cervix. It actually sits on the cervix. So that's why it's washed. Um, you can also purchase an ICI or intercervical insemination preparation, which uh, is used for uh, the ICI procedure where the catheter inserts the specimen directly onto the cervix. Um, you could also purchase some some sperm banks offer IVF or ART samples, which are um, samples with a lower count, uh, a lower number of sperm per vial, because those are typically used for artificial reproductive technologies such as IVF, where you actually need fewer sperm to fertilize an egg that's in, in that's being done um, in vitro in the lab. Um, you can use IVF, ART, or ICI vials for an IUI preparation if the clinic is going to wash the sample for you. 
So again, this is why it's important to have a conversation with the doctor to find out what procedure you're going to have in order to purchase the proper prep type for the sperm. Okay, excellent. Now, her sec- Bettina's second question is how to go about choosing a donor. And Mickey, I, since you've both done it personally and also run a website and forums uh, for women in the process, what factors do you think women should consider when choosing a donor? Yeah, actually, there's uh, my favorite stories in terms of choosing single, uh, choosing donors are women who sometimes get together with their friends or family who are in the journey with them, and they look at profiles, top profiles of donors that they're interested in, and sometimes they sit around over a glass of wine and they make choices and they turn it into a really fun evening. Um, that way, you get some input because it can be very daunting. All of the different uh, criteria that we have now to make those choices. The sperm banks offer much more than they used to and certainly much more than they do in other countries. But then with that becomes a lot of extra decision making. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some women certainly are looking for physical characteristics. Others really pay a lot of attention to those essay questions. Um, So it kind of depends on your own personal interests and criteria. Some are looking for an ethnic mix. But uh, I do love it when women report, uh, you know, how they've brought other people who will be part of their support network into the decision-making process from the very beginning. Michelle, you are only with one sperm bank, of course, but you are uh, know what kind of is typical. Um, sure. What type of information generally is going to be available uh, to women who are trying to decide on a donor for sperm? Well, I can tell you that most, if not all, of the major sperm banks are going to give you one of the most important pieces of information, I think, is the medical history profile. It's a document that outlines multiple generations of medical history for the donor, um, their family for one or two or possibly three generations. If the donor themselves has a child, the child's health history would be included in that profile. And that's really important because you get a clear picture of the medical history of the donor and his family, and that's something that you do want to know. Most, if not all, sperm banks also offer personal profiles, and I can tell you at Fairfax, our personal profiles go into a lot of detail. Um, There's everything from questions about, you know, the donor's uh, education and his skill sets. Uh, We have found that a lot of people really like men who are educated in the sort of scientific or math fields, but that really have creative outlets like music or cooking even. And all of that is information that can be found in those personal profiles. Mickey mentioned the essays. The sperm banks offer personal essays from the donors, but also I know we offer um, staff impressions. And what we also have put up online are free audio clips of the staff giving you a short anecdote about interactions with the donor. So you get to hear somebody talk about the donor um, to really give a sense. Audio interviews are really popular. They're recorded interviews that ask questions of the donor from everything from, you know, if, if you had an unlimited budget, where would you travel to? What was your favorite book growing up? What kind of games did you play? So there's a lot of very specific personal information, non-identifying, of course, but very. Um, it, it really does reveal a lot about the personality. So you get more than just a picture of the donor physically, because obviously you can choose the donor by height, weight, eye color, hair color, build, skin tone, all of the sort of physical characteristics, um, which are important to consider. And then, obviously, information about their ethnic background, um, as well as uh, you know their their current status, if they're students, what they're studying, if they're employed, what field they're in, which is all really important in presenting that whole package to sort of understand who this person is and and why that um, why they're the most appealing donor for you. It really is about finding the right match for you. Um, and you know there there are also services for example we we have something called face match where you can upload a photograph that will give you a list of donors that have characteristics that resemble um characteristics of the person in the photograph and that's been really popular we've had something like 
80,000 uploads of photos in the past, you know, since we've launched the program. So people really do like that. Um, but Mickey did mention it can be overwhelming. There's so much information that mm-hmm. if you can pair up with some friends or, you know, enjoy it, have fun with it, and really, you know, narrow down your choices and, and get some input from people that support you, it can be a really positive and fun experience. And it helps sometimes to pri- to, to prioritize what's the most important to you. Right. So that you don't become overwhelmed by so much information, because then you can say yes, but I'm primarily looking for, uh, and I think most people would put health history first, and then I'm looking for this, this, and this, so that you are, you're narrowing it down. You are listening to Creating a Family. Creating a Family's mission is to provide unbiased and accurate information for those who are struggling to create their family. We have extensive resources on single parenthood on our single parenthood page under, uh, I believe it's actually under our adoption resources. Uh, we are in the process of redoing our um, website, and it will uh, be under both adoption and infertility resources on the new site, which we hope to launch soon. We uh, uh, The next question we've gotten has to do with anonymous versus identified uh, donors, and and I think that the, I think and then, and and then known donors. I'm, they, the question didn't ask that, but I'm going to throw that in uh, because I think there is some confusion out there about what these terms mean in, when we're speaking of donor sperm, uh, because there's a lot of talk now about uh, the the subsequent child's right to uh, know uh, or potential that the child might want to know information uh, about uh, the donor. So, Michelle, can you explain what we mean by anonymous, identified, identifying information, known donor? What do these terms mean and how do they differ? Sure. So the first thing just to point out is that each sperm bank has very specific policies that are applicable to them. And so one of the things that we really stress to all of our potential recipients is that you really need to know who you're working with and understand their policies. It should all be on their website. It should be clear. And if not, I would ask a lot of questions. Um, To define the categories, the most straightforward is the anonymous donor. Anonymous donors are just that. They're men who are donating the sperm who do not intend at the time of donation to have contact with the children that are the results of using his donor sperm in the future. Um, Those donors provide the same level of information that ID donors provide. They also undergo the same testing and screening. So the difference is literally just that they, at the time of donation, are not intending to be known at any time in the future to the children that result. ID option um, at our sperm bank, the way that the program works, is that those donors come into the program understanding and signing an agreement that when the resulting children are of age, which is 18 or older, those children can contact the sperm bank. We will then work to connect them to the donor. Um, And that connection that can be email, phone call, letter, or who knows whatever technology will exist in the future. You know, right. they could potentially be communicating that way. So the intent there is that the the children that are conceived using the ID donors um, samples will, at some point in the future, once they reach the age of 18, be given access to contact information for that donor. And then the last category that you mentioned, known donors or directed donors, these are men who are actually known to the recipient. So this we actually at Fairfax, we work, we have a pretty robust directed donor system. At our um, at four of our locations, we will work with recipients and directed donors to process, screen, do all of the required steps for known donors. This is where a woman can utilize the sperm from somebody that they know, a friend, um, you know, a friend that they consider would be, you know, a, a good candidate the regulatory agency, the, the FDA, does require that directed donors are screened and tested in the same way that uh, sperm bank sperm donors are tested. The logic there is that it is a non-sexually intimate donor. Um, and so, you know, the whole point of the FDA is to stop the spread of infectious disease, and that's why they do require that screening and testing. So, there are clinics and some other sperm banks do have directed donor programs to facilitate this process. So those are the three types and the differences. Okay. 
And uh, we have done other shows, um, uh, and I, I will direct the audience, uh, talking about the things you need to think about when making this decision on whether to go with uh, an anonymous or information ID or known or directed. Uh, and and uh, so I, we, won't, we won't go off on that now, but we have certainly done shows, and there's a lot to think about there. We received a question she asked not for her name not to be used. She says, do you have to use a doctor to do the actual transfer of sperm? And if you are using a known donor, is there anything I need to think about on why I should do a transfer with artificial insemination or just sleeping with the guy even though we are not lovers, just friends? Nikki, hmm. I hope that – are you able to understand that question? I, I get what she's yes. – she's asking two different questions. The first one is about let's uh, let's separate them. The first one is, uh, using a doctor to do artificial insemination, uh, and or and or it would probably be intracervical insemination, uh, or uh, or doing it at home, um, sometimes yes. affectionately known as a turkey baster method. Uh, yes. So, and then the second yeah. question is, we'll touch that one in a second. This is uh, I use a known donor, a directed donor, and there's certainly a lot of conversation on the Choice Mom discussion boards about. Um, I'll start with the second question first. The, when you do sleep with somebody, which is certainly the cheapest method and the most <laughs> traditional method of having children, sometimes after a while we choice moms forget that that's actually how most people do conceive. Um, you know, you all of in us <laughs> in the infertility world at times are, are guilty of that. I mean, we're just we're all, we're so used to people. Struggling on some level, that the idea that one just sleeps and, and gets, you know, <laughs> right. has sex and gets pregnant is kind of like, well, I'll be doggone. Go ahead, right. I interrupt. <laughs> it's like magic. <laughs> yeah, I know. How um, did that happen? Yeah, but the, there are huge legal implications with that, and certainly we tend to be very optimistic when we enter into something with a friend who has offered that um, things will be fine. Um, but certainly the the really tough, sad cases I do hear about are those who did have did not use a doctor for insemination, which gives you a legal barrier. Um, all states don't understand the parentage laws completely, but at least when you do use a doctor with a directed donor, it does give you a a much more natural legal barrier. There are a lot of cases I do hear about, not a lot, but certainly there are those cases and you don't want to be one of them where either the donor has decided he loves the idea of having children and wants to be very involved and maybe he wasn't a very good partner choice for various reasons and might not be a good father choice. And so that ends up causing some wrinkles as time goes on. I talked recently with a woman who 10 years after the fact is having to go through that issue with her son and his directed donor who wants to be much more involved than either she or the son want to be. Um, And uh, you do also have the cases where donors have then been um, sued for uh, child support over time. Um, It doesn't happen a lot in the choice mom community, but it's certainly something where there are no legal protections when you do um, sleep with somebody. Um, And then could you remind me the first question? The first part of her question had to do with whether or not to, and you've you've kind of answered Mm. it from a legal standpoint, I don't know if there's another way, if there are any other things to think about other than legal, whether or not to do a transfer uh, in a doctor's office, uh, which would probably, or do it at home. And and I, I would think that one thing to think through would be, is there a, is there a difference in success uh, between mm-hmm. in a doctor you have the option of intrauterine or you could do intracervical where it's placed on the cervix or at home you would only, I would assume, have the option of intracervical. Is that correct? Yeah. Yes. And, you know, to that I would add that I always recommend that women start off with a doctor for the fertility test. We tend to underestimate women who choose single motherhood tend to be fairly goal-driven women who just 
feel generally like they'll succeed at whatever they do, <laughs> but conception <laughs> is not within our control, and so do, women do tend to underestimate the fertility challenges that come after the age of 35, which we typically are. So I always recommend that women start with their doctors, get the full fertility testing that's available to make sure a lot of women, it's actually the known donor section of choicemoms.org has more traffic than almost any other section on the website. There are certainly a lot of women who are opting for that first, um, but again, with a doctor's attention, uh, you can certainly do that at home. I've also found it's been fun at workshops I've done. Uh, it's been fun to listen to the different perspectives. Women in San Francisco, for example, very much are familiar with the at-home insemination process. I brought it up at a discussion group in New York, and a woman said, we don't even like to do our nails by our, you know, We don't even like to do our own nails. Why would we want to do that? But uh, anyway... <laughs> but yes, I would always recommend starting with a doctor and they can certainly help facilitate at-home insemination. And there's also great midwives um, mm -hmm. who who are available for consultations. You know, it's interesting because I would say in our audience, we don't, and it could be that that's because they're not, you know, it's, it, but we hear more from people who are interested in donor sperm. Uh, and uh, identified information is certainly is certainly the one that most people are at least asking questions about. So I, I, that just that's an interesting thing. Uh, not so much the in-home that we don't hear too much about, but, yeah, interesting. You're listening to Creating a Family. We are a nonprofit, and one of the ways we pay our bills is through our wonderful sponsors who believe in our mission of bringing you unbiased, accurate information and supporting you on whatever your path is to achieving parenthood. One way you can help us is by supporting those who support us. So you've just heard about a few of our gold sponsors at the beginning of the show, but we have other sponsors as well. So if you're looking for an infertility doctor, attorney, or therapist, or a sperm bank, or egg bank, or donor egg or surrogacy agency, or donor embryo clinic, uh, or an adoption agency, or an adoption attorney, or therapist, please make your first stop to creating a family directories on the service provider page of our website. You can search by location, services provided, years in operation, just a whole host of factors that we think are important when choosing. And by using these directories, you support those who support us, and we thank you. Now, moving to the, to the, uh, to the realm of adoption, because that is another way that single women uh, can become uh, parents, Lee, I have a question for you, and it's one we hear a lot. Is it harder for single women to adopt than for a heterosexual married couple to adopt? And, and I think to answer that, uh, we probably need to talk about the different types of adoption. So I'm gonna, the, I'll ask you that question first related to domestic infant adoption, also sometimes known as birth mother relinquishment adoption, where the birth mother chooses the, the family to, be, to parent her child. Yes, um... Well, I would say that basically it probably is somewhat harder, and um, one of the reasons for that being that um, birth moms, birth parents have a lot of input in, in terms of choosing a, uh, an adoptive parent, and that's a good thing, but many choose to have um, a heterosexual couple, uh, a mom and a dad, raise their child. And so I think that it is somewhat harder for a single woman or a single man to be chosen by a birth mom. It doesn't mean that it's impossible, but I think that it is um, less likely. Yeah, that's so, what we see as well. We we did a show just a couple of, oh gosh, just a month ago, I guess, on what expectant women look for when choosing adoptive families. And, of course, we got this question um, and uh, about uh, uh, single moms and single dads. Um, and the adoption professionals were not, I mean, they they were more, oh, yes, we we absolutely see single women getting chosen, but I certainly see, Lee, exactly what you say, and that is, yes, they are getting chosen, but, but I, I do think it takes longer. Uh, Lee, are you seeing that... Uh, that the women who single women who are are being selected are open to more uh, risk factors and 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 or or any conditions that would make the child harder to place and the ones that we usually see 
are uh, a history of prenatal exposure, alcohol or drugs during the pregnancy, or a history of mental illness in the uh, uh, birth family or extended birth family. Um, do you see that as well? And then sometimes race, although I see that less and less of an issue, but uh, uh, as someone who's open to a full African-American child, since there are fewer families who are open to that, although, again, I don't see that so much anymore. Um, what are you seeing? Well, absolutely. I mean, I think that's true for both international and domestic, and I think the more um, – the more open you can be in terms of race, in terms of age of the child, in terms of special needs of the child, um, the greater likelihood that you will adopt sooner rather than later. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I definitely think that. But, you know, at the same time, I mean, one of the things when I was running my um, decision-making groups in the 80s and 90s, I mean, it's important to be true to yourself I mean, on the one hand, you know, you need to think about, you know, being open. But on the other hand, um, if there's certain things that you find that you just really couldn't feel comfortable with, it's important to um, to be clear about that within yourself and not to move so far outside of your comfort zone that you're you're just not comfortable going forward with the adoption. Uh, amen, and I I couldn't agree with you more. As much as we want people to uh, uh, to consider outside of their initial comfort zone, I, I what I really want is for people to get educated about what those things really mean. But I I very much agree that the last thing that you want as a single or a, a married adoptive parent is to adopt a child whose needs you aren't able to meet because ultimately we're supposed to be doing everything we do in the world of adoption uh, for the best interest of the child, and that's not in a child's best interest. So I I agree completely. Um, Let's talk about foster care. Now, adopting from foster care, depending on the the needs, it seems to me that uh, there are certainly children uh, who would thrive uh, with uh, having just a single mom or just a single dad. Uh, uh, Lee, do you see, and, and, and Mickey, I'll throw this one open to you as well. Um, we'll start with Lee. Do you see that in foster care, uh, families are, uh, single uh, moms in particular, uh, are being passed over in favor of uh, heterosexual married couples? I actually don't see that. Um, I remember when I started this work, I think it was about 30% of kids placed from foster care were placed with single parents, and I think that's probably gone up, actually. Mm-hmm, I think you're and, right. Yeah, and, and I, th- I think actually that um, many social workers actually look for a single parent. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons yeah. being that, you know, depending on the age of the child and the history of the child, Sometimes I think it actually is a better placement or certainly as good a placement uh, that the child be in a single-parent home where there's that one-on-one undivided attention that the Mm -hmm. the parent can offer. You know, Mm -hmm. perhaps they were, you know, just to throw out an example, uh, sexually abused by, uh, you know, a a man and they they feel Mm -hmm. that a placement with a single woman would be better. Um, You know, there are various scenarios that actually make it sometimes preferable that uh, yeah, a I, child be placed. Yeah. That we I see it as well, so I I think it is but again, adopting a child from uh, who has experienced trauma, neglect, abuse is not for everyone and and you absolutely no. do need to understand uh so that you know whether you're capable uh, of meeting that child's needs and and again creating a family has many 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 resources to help you uh, do just that to say nothing of the fact that you're, you're you will be required to take one of the um rather extensive education programs being offered now international adoption um uh Lee what are you seeing when international adoption as far as being open to single moms well, that's been, as I'm sure you know, Dawn, a huge change <laughs> because mm-hmm. when I, I actually started my adoption in 1983, <clears throat> that was just the beginning of a lot of single women um, adopting internationally, and there were several countries that were were open to single women and um, some to single men. And that, you know, continued through the 80s and the early 90s, and... Um, and, and actually the 90s, and then several things happened that 
I think made it less. I mean, many countries have basically closed. I mean, many have closed. Um, many agencies have closed since the recession, and many countries have closed because they put much more strict um, guidelines on who they will allow to adopt. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, China. I think it was in 2008, and Russia, as you know, last year. So mm-hmm. many of the countries where singles were adopting. Um, have closed basically to singles, or at least they're very much more strict in terms like for China, they will allow uh, singles to adopt, but only special needs children. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're exactly right. Um, let me, uh, Mickey, I know I said I was going to throw, uh, ask you a question as well on that one. Let me, uh, this one I will uh, ask to you, and then I imagine Lee will have a, um, uh, some input as well. Leslie writes, I would appreciate any suggestions as a single woman on how to prepare my adoption profile so that it will be more appealing to birth mothers. Any thoughts on that, Mickey? Yeah, I actually have a a friend who adopted here, and one of the things she did that really brought her to the top uh, actually, she it was one of those situations where about five children over time were actually placed with her. Um, four of them didn't stay. Um, the birth parents uh, took, uh, however that worked. But um, but one reason she was at the top a lot was um, she had a very energetic profile, very creative, very personality oriented. You really. It's a it's a great place to sort of let your personality shine, and she was able to um, put together a portfolio in a very business-minded fashion that was very appealing. It just stood out, and putting that kind of effort into a portfolio of the kinds of things you love to do, the kinds of experiences you've had, the kinds of adventures you want to have with your child um, is, is something that I think really served her well. Um, I'd also like to add that I do, in the earlier conversation, I do see more and more women turning, because International has been closing, Guatemala also used to be a great place for singles before. And uh, foster care adoption, I'm hearing more and more stories from women on the boards of, of them really thriving. And as you and, and as, as you, Don and Lee, indicated, I um, certainly have been hearing about the preference for singles with that one-on-one and, um, you know, for a variety of different reasons. But the, the dedication factor is huge, and I think that's something that can go into that profile as well. Mm-hmm. That's an excellent point. Any other suggestions, Lee, that you would have? Well, one suggestion I would have, I guess it's it's sort of obvious, but I think um, financial stability is often really important to um, a birth mom or birth parents. And so I think that's something to, you know, at least um, be clear, you you know, highlight. Yeah, because I think that um, they want to know, especially if you're a single parent, that you have not only the financial means, but... um, you know, the the stability, and that also includes, I think, a support network. So I think highlighting that you have an extensive support network is also, I think, uh, another factor that can be helpful. That's a great idea. And if you have uh, easy access to re- to male role models, um, that would be something else to uh, highlight yes. in addition to your support network. Uh, since... It is not uncommon for singles to have roommates. Lee, how how are roommates viewed in the the home study process? Because every adoptive uh, would be adoptive uh, parent has to have a home study. So, how are roommates viewed, and and uh, what has been your experience on um, being able to maintain roommate roommate relationships uh, after an adoption? Um, well, it's interesting because. In the 80s, um, uh, when we worked with gay and lesbian um, people, they often uh, chose to call their partner a roommate um, because they weren't, you know, there was there wasn't mm-hmm. a possibility for them to adopt as a couple. Right. And um, so, in in terms of actually having a roommate, I think it's, it's you know who's not a partner. In other words. 
I, I think it really just um, depends on, you know, if that's the type of choice that, you know, the type of lifestyle that you're living and feel comfortable with that's just, you know, treated as, you know, who you are in terms of the home study. But um, I think Anybody that, over the I, age of 18 will have to have a background check. Uh, yes. That may, there may be some state that I know of no state that does not require that anyone in the home, living in the home over the age of, usually it's 18, now it may vary by state, uh, must have uh, the background, the, 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 the traditional background checks must be done on, on everyone. That's something to be aware of. And you need to get your roommates, uh, you know, uh, buy-in on the fact that that's going to be required. Well, one of the things in terms of roommates, uh, if it is a roommate situation and and they're not, uh, it's not a situation where two people are partners, um, is that I think it's important for people to be aware that when you bring a child into your home, they're going to become attached to whoever is there with you, and that can be a very strong attachment. And if you have a roommate, you know, I think it's important to talk about what that means to have a child. I mean, is that roommate going to be somebody that's going to be there for a few months and then suddenly take off? Um, the child may have become very attached to that person. Is that someone who has a commitment to having a, a, an ongoing relationship with this child, whether they're you know, still a roommate or not? So I think it's important to clarify some of those things you know, in advance. Mm, yeah. yeah, and do you want that person to have a, a parenting type of right. relationship? And they need to think through that. Mickey, any thoughts on, on the... Uh, Roommates and uh, mm-hmm. and it, this one actually I would say has it would be uh, irrespective of whether you choose to uh, conceive uh, or become a parent through adoption or through um, uh, donor sperm. Yeah, and you know I I didn't go through I didn't obviously go through a home study process, but since moving from New York to Minneapolis, I've had a larger house than I could afford in my apartment in New York. And I've had, since since my son was born 10 years ago, I have had three housemates. And But as Lee indicated, you know, if it is a house, if it is a roommate and not a silent partner, uh, they do change. And I've had at least 20 housemates over the years. And for me, it's part of the support network and village that I tend to pick people, and this could be part of that profile as well or part of that conversation, is is I tend to pick people who I think will add something of interest to my child's life, whether it's because of their artistic or musical bent or in the case now with my son being older, I'm looking for people who love to play. <laughs> Outside. Um, okay, let's be so honest. You're a, looking for people who will help wear your boy out. <laughs> yes, I got it's that. It's a lovely, it's a lovely way to again sort of add to your village and the exposure your kids have. But like Lee said, consistency is very important. Stability is very important, and that goes to the male role model, model questions that you have that you'll have as well with the home study. Um, and you know, my son is now old enough to be in the Big Brothers program and it's been an amazing, wonderful experience for him. Um, and and that consistency, if, if, if you can kind of identify the fact that you have had people in your life for long periods of time, I think that helps a lot. Um, because, yes, my children certainly have seen a lot of different people come and go. Um, the attachments kind of come and go, and that's part of life. I mean, all of our friendships and relationships change over time. I think it's a good learning experience, but you do also need those constant, consistent factors, um, male and female, and that, if you can identify those types of relationships, I think that will help as well. I'd like to take a moment to remind you that you are listening to Creating a Family, talk about infertility and adoption, and to also note that we do have a few more gold sponsors, and it is through their generous support that we can bring you this show and all the resources that we provide at Creating a Family. We have Cryos International. They are a New York sperm bank, which is part of the world's largest international network of sperm bank. Cryos New York offers donor semen and semen storage services with the ability to ability to ship specimen to more than 65 countries, and we have Reproductive Medicine Associates of New Jersey. They are recognized as a scientific and patient care leader in the field of infertility with seven offices in New Jersey. They maintain IVF delivery rates well above the national average. 
And last but not least, Children's Connection with offices throughout Texas providing domestic infant adoption, embryo donation adoption, home studies, and post-adoption support to families throughout the United States. Well, uh, Mickey, you you did a great segue into Jennifer's question. She says, I am adopting as a single mom, a single woman. I have a referral for a little girl who is three from Uganda. How will I know if she has enough good male influences in her life? I have an amazing father who I hope will be around for for a good portion of her life, but I am wondering what are the signs that he is not enough? So I think let me back up and start with a question is what are some ideas um, that, and I'd like to ask all of you, uh, Michelle, you have some knowledge of this because of what you you talk with a lot of single moms. Um, So what are some ideas for finding male role models for your girls and boys, because I am a big believer that girls need male role models just as much as boys. We think in terms of boys, but uh, I believe both, I think children all need male role models. So, Mickey, since you were the one who had just mentioned Big Brothers, let me uh, uh, go back and say, and let's start with you, uh, and then I'll ask Lee and then Michelle. Yeah, I uh, we just started the Big Brothers program this year. You know, they do the full background checks. They check in with everybody along the way each month, and I think it's it's been wonderful. He's been matched with an amazing 28-year-old man, and they've done um, wonderful things a couple times a month. So I'm a big proponent of Big Brothers. You know, when I started, my daughter now is 14, and I... I I tend to have a lot of male friends, but when I relocated, I was kind of starting over. And so typically I did think about my father. Of course, he's now quite a bit older and is starting to suffer from dementia. So obviously, again, things change over time. He's been a wonderful influence um, for both of my children. And I like the fact, certainly, yes, girls need male role models just as much as boys do. Um, but I think, you know, I've had a lot of, you know, part of it is as our kids grow and develop, the idea is to keep looking out consciously for people who fit in with their skill sets. My daughter's very creative. My son is very athletic. And so um, it would have been easier for me if my son was also, he's also very creative, but he really wants to play Mm -hmm. sports and so I've had to sort of adapt and keep people in mind and keep looking and you know it is about being very very conscious about who's around whether it's coaches whether especially once they get to school it's parents um, of friends who can fill some of that as well I've got a wonderful friend who's been around for about five years in my son's life he takes some rock climbing and swimming and biking on a regular basis uh, with his son so there are lots of opportunities when you keep looking. Lee, any suggestions either from yourself personally or for others that you've worked with or from the book, The uh, the, the Single Adoptive Parents, Our Stories, um, any that you can mention from that book or from your own life? Well, interestingly enough, uh, for my own life, I dated a man when my son was very uh, young, when he was about two, and the relationship didn't work out. But um, he continued as a friend um, for, I mean, my son is now 30, (laughs) and he's been a wonderful um, friend to both me and my son. So it's it's sometimes you don't know where these male role models are going to come from or, you know, by by what means. But as Mickey said, I also had my son in a Big Brother program, and he was matched um, first with a young man who was in his 20s, and then he moved on, and then with another older man. And that was wonderful because, you know, they did things that I didn't necessarily want to do with my son. And, you know, so I think that, as Mickey said, I mean, just to be sort of consciously aware of within your environment. I have other adoptive parents, for example, I had a, ma- uh, a friend who was a single adoptive parent, and he was a role model to, you know, or he was someone who was in the lives of many of the women who had adopted. Um, and I agree with you, Dawn, that it's important for, for girls as well as boys to have um, connection with, with men, positive mm-hmm. connections with male role yeah. models. 
Michelle, any creative ways that you've seen some of the single uh, moms that you've worked with, creative ways that they have found to make certain they have uh, men in their children's lives? Well, you know, it's interesting. I've done several different panels like most of us, I'm sure, have. And uh, one of the recent ones that I was at, a woman in the audience, she she was a lesbian who had been partnered but was now single who was pursuing this on her own. She talked about um, this, and she was lucky enough to have several brothers, so she was not lacking men in her life. Um, and so she was going to be relying on them. But she also made an interesting comment about the fact that the donor was going to be a male role model, though though he wasn't known to the child while they, you know, her her future child while the child would be growing up. Her plan was to provide the profile information to talk about him openly, to talk about his his interests and everything. I thought that was interesting. It was the first time I'd ever heard anybody verbalize. Yeah, kind of- Something like that. Me too, but I kind of question that because I think in terms of role models as being people your child actually sees, I think that a a donor who is not a part of their life, and it is possible to have a known donor um, that is a part of your child's life, and I get that, then that that person is intending to play a role in the kid's life. But I'm not sure, and I don't know, I'll have to think on that, but I think the theoretical idea that there was a man who donated sperm uh, I wonder how useful that would be from a child standpoint who is yeah. looking for how to become a man or how to become a, a woman and relate to men in this world. Um, I think she was, I mean, I just thought it was interesting, and I think that she was thinking about it in terms of a bigger scale, like who her role models in life have been, not necessarily people that she's known. But generally oh, what see. we yeah, do. I see your point, like, you know, yeah, Albert Einstein But generally what we do Generally, what we do here is that you know it's male relatives, it's male friends, but obviously, as as Lee and, and Mickey have said, you have to you have to really think carefully about this because it's you know you want stability in your child's life, and so people who have really strong connections with friends that are like family, um, like many of us do, you know those are the kind of men that that they're bringing into the children's lives. Well, and you raise a good point, that, and this leads into another question we have. What are some good ways for me to help create attachment for my daughter to my family, immediate, my mom, dad, sister, and niece, so that she bonds with them but does not lose her understanding of me as the mom? Um, I, I'm interested in this question because I do know that uh, we hear a lot on the creating of family communities. And, and, again, I don't know if this is unique but it does seem like a lot of single uh, parents, but in, in particular single moms, end up living near extended family. And, I, and, and, and most often it is a conscious choice that they're making um, to, to have community around. So, Lee, I'll start with you on this one. What are some ways, I think that this questioner is, is wondering if uh, she wants her child to be attached to her her family, her extended you know her parents and sister and niece, but she doesn't want to lose her identity as the child's mom. She has yet to adopt. Any thoughts that you can give her? Um, well, I guess my first uh, my first response to that is, is that the more people you can bring in, the better it will be for you and your child and that there's not really a danger of the child losing a sense of you as their mom. I mean, um, so I would have loved dearly to have been able to move, you know, closer to my family. My mother died when I was quite young and I, I'm always very envious of people who have that kind of support, um, particularly as a single parent. So I don't see that as something that's really, um, you know, a, a danger in a way, and I'm I'm very much in favor of sort of bringing in as many aunts, uncles, grandparents, whatever, to help support you and help support your child um, in this journey. So I, you know, I, I mean, I I guess you know, in terms of the the bonding, you know. Uh, I think it's it's helpful if you can have more people that feel very bonded to your child as well as you yourself. I guess you know there's a we we use a saying around here uh and often it's used in in relation to open adoption but it can be used in any way you you, you can't have too much love. You know there's right. uh, the more people that love your child the better. It's uh it's not a it's a it's an and not an either or as your as your conjunction seems to me. 
Um, Mickey, you chose to move from New York to uh, nearer your family. Um, mm -hmm. And ha what are some other ideas of creating community uh, to surround yep. you and to support you and your children? Yeah, and, you know, I, I also want to just completely concur with both of you that the more people who love your child, the better. And there's no confusion. Um, even, you know, a choice mom with an open adoption, now that everyone's older, her son certainly knows both his birth mother and his birth father, and, and that as well has been a wonderful gift to him. Uh, and, yes, I did relocate to be closer to family and roots, and that's been a wonderful uh situation for all of us. The one thing that uh, we do now that I, I heartily enjoy uh, every year for Thanksgiving is how we've done it. Um, the kids and I stay in our pajamas all day because we really don't have a lot of family. My parents live in Arizona in the winter and we don't have extended family. So it's a fairly small unit. Um, but what we do each year for Thanksgiving is we create a flower. You know, in kindergarten people do family trees oftentimes and we don't have both sides of the family to fill out. So we started this tradition then of creating a flower so you're actively each year creating petals and roots and leaves and shoots that indicate each of us who's important to us, who's been important to us, and having sort of a conscious look at how we grow our, again, our village and find the family and friends. It's very much friends and even, you know, community groups, churches and school groups um, is a way to remind us that even if we don't have a lot of family, we have a lot of people around us who love us and who we love, which is just as important. Yeah, and that's, that's a beautiful tradition. It really is. I've I've heard you speak of that before, and I love that idea. Um, as and here's a question we have: As a single mother, how do you handle your boyfriends? And I was going to just leave that. Oh, I was just going to say that and not give the rest of it. I thought that would be an interesting question. However, she does go on. She says, by that I mean, when do you introduce them to your kids? My son is a baby, so now he is clueless, plus I don't have time for a boyfriend. But when he's older, what is the best way to handle it? So let's say, Lee, um, what are your suggestions to single women who are dating as to uh, do you introduce your boyfriend? If so, when do you introduce your boyfriend? Uh, how, do, how do you handle that? Well, I felt I feel frankly like I made some errors in this in this area, but I guess you learn from your mistakes in a way. Sure, we all do. Um, yes, we do. You know, I, I think it depends on the age of the child, obviously, but um, you know, I, I've heard different things. I mean, some kids are very uh, sort of longing for a father, and anyone you bring into the home, they're going to glom onto. Others, um, I've heard stories of like get that guy out of here. I don't want to have anything to do with them. I'm jealous uh, and he's taking your you know, time. So it, it yeah. Can, yeah, so it can it can go either way. But I think the one of the most important things is to do it slowly, uh, to not suddenly surprise your child with, you know, this is your new person that's living with us, or, you know, to, to do it slowly and uh, to listen to your child um, to get a sense of, how your child's feeling about the... I mean, I think for me, one of the things looking back was that, um, you know, my son connected very strongly to the man that I was dating. I mean, he just immediately was sort of seeing him as his father. And I was still sort of feeling out the relationship, really. And it yes, was, he was know, ahead of you, huh? Yeah. Exactly. And so I, I think that, you know, I mean... It worked out in a, in a way that was positive for both of us, but I think at the time it was very, very hard for my son when I finally said, this this isn't working. Um, and because it was hard for him, it was very hard for me to see him go through yet another loss when he'd already had losses in his past. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a really tricky thing and needs to be handled very delicately and a lot of listening and a lot of uh, kind of feeling out where your child is and doing it very slowly. And, um, you know, in some ways when we choose to adopt or become, you know, a single parent, um, I think we 
we have to realize that there may be some sacrifices that we need to make that we might feel like, yeah, let's have this guy come in and see how it works. But you can't do that when you have a kid. Or you can't, you know, I mean, it's it's not always in the best interest of, of the child or you to really do yeah. that. You can't experiment in that same way. Mm-hmm. So... Mickey, That's any thoughts on the, uh, the how to handle uh, boyfriends or girlfriends? Yeah, yeah. You know, I could. Uh, well, there should be much more content and shows that we do on this topic alone. Uh, mm-hmm. but, yeah, I agree with you. You know, I, I I certainly have a lot of anecdotes from from people who have dealt with it in different ways and, yes, made mistakes and corrected them later and gone through a lot of hardships. I I'm, I'm having a little more experience with dating lately than I intended to. My kids are now older and it's made a huge difference because, yes, I think up until generally unless somebody really falls into your lap, you you tend to not have a lot of energy until they're around seven or eight. Um, <laughs> so, uh, and my kids are now 10 and 14. I I do think it very much depends on, I tend to have friendships with people first, and so in my case it made it very natural when somebody I was involved with uh, a few years ago, he was part of our life as a friend, and then gradually, as our relationship developed, it, he, it, you know, it developed differently. My daughter reacted to it very differently with, than my son, certainly, um, and you know, and you know, and then I'll, I'll, certainly when that relationship ended, it, it impacted us. It, uh, but you know, again, it's been. It's been one of those things that I think is kind of a learning. You talk about it. I mean, part of it is talking about loss. We all experience losses. We all experience grief. My son a few years ago expressed for the first time that he wished he had a dad when he was with a family friend. And um, that was the first time we'd had that conversation, and he was eight. And so... And then he did want to meet the, his biological father, which we did last year for the very first time. Um, and there, too, it was just to shake hands. So it is. it does depend on what your children are kind of looking for, what you are looking for, what that person, other person's looking for. I've, you know, I've certainly had situations where there's been men who have wanted to be integrated into the family, and it's just not right. So... That's different, and so you you do figure out the parameters piece by piece, um, you know. And again, ideally, I mean, you do change your dating partners. I'm certainly now looking for people who would be great male role models if I'm at all going to be serious about them. But you know, in other cases, you're just looking to be out and be a mom, and it's not. I don't have any interest in merging until my kids are both gone. So it's a very different kind of dating experience than a lot um, than I than I think other people have. Michelle, I'll give you the uh, the last chance. And from your experience talking with women, of course, you probably talk with women more when they're at the thinking, not the actual raising. Um, right. But uh, uh, what are women thinking? Uh, how much are they giving? How much pre-thought are they giving to the idea of how becoming a mom will change uh, their dating life? You know, in being at the sperm bank and doing the panels that I have participated in with the the actual potential recipients, it's the conversations usually aren't about that. So I don't know that I have um, I don't know that I have much to contribute there. They're mostly talking with me and in the, at these panels about what what kind of donor they're looking for and why those characteristics are important. I think right. it's telling yeah. in that they're looking for you know, people who they might also consider potential, you know, have characteristics of potential men to date. So other than that, we don't really get that much into how it's going to affect their dating life. And quite frankly, people don't think about it, in my experience, until after the fact, uh, unless there's Mm -hmm. a guy in their life at that, you know, when they're considering this, which is not the norm like that. Can I Uh, I add something real quick? Sorry. Please, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I, I do in a lot of the workshops hear women who are afraid that they're never going to meet a partner. And to that, I would certainly say generally you probably won't want to for a long time, but then if you do, it's certainly, it's certainly not. Uh, it doesn't preclude you from having relationships later in life. And again, your choices may, might change. 
but it's um that's something that I know a lot of women do have a, a fear about and it's really not you know, it's not something they need to be afraid of. Actually, it's funny you say that. I was just speaking not uh, at a conference not very long ago with a woman who has been home one year with uh, having after having adopted a child and she was saying, she goes, you know, I have, she goes, it's like there, this child is like a guy magnet. <laughs> she said, I mean, we've, we've always heard the reverse where a, you know, a, a child is a chick magnet. Um, I, I was surprised by that because I was thinking, she goes, I don't have the time for it, you know, but, but, uh, it was, it was very funny when she said that. I thought, well, there you go, you know. Um, if you have enjoyed our show and want to help us grow, please rate this pod- podcast on iTunes. Uh, you can either you have a, uh, reach iTunes on your computer or your phone, uh, and you can just type when you get there, just type in the words creating a family, and we will pop up and you can rate it. And if you've got an extra minute, we would love to have you leave a comment. You can also access iTunes from the radio page of our site, creatingafamily.org slash radio page. Click on the iTunes button, and it will take you there, and you can rate it as well. Well, thank you so much, Lee Verone, Michelle, Dr. Michelle Ate, and Mickey Morissette for being our guests today on Creating a Family. Now, Mickey, if people are going to want to get more information on you or your book, uh, you want to give us the uh, address, your uh, your brand new or new and not brand yes. new, it's a new and uh, <laughs> new and revised uh, website. You're ahead of me on this. Uh, what is yes. that website? Yep, I'm very excited about choicemoms.org. I think I'm a, a few months ahead of you in the revamping, but it's been uh, it's great. Choicemoms.org. I'm very happy with it. It's got about 500 articles uh, from the old great. version, but it's a lot easier to navigate. Yeah, I'm I'm holding you out as hope that I will eventually get there, or we will eventually <laughs> get there. Um, Lee, if people are wanting more information on you or either of your books, including your new book. Single Adopted Parents, Our Stories. Uh, can you tell them how to get to yours? Is it fortunately a very easy website? How do they get there? It's uh, leaverone.com, basically. Yeah. yeah. yeah and also, the, the books are available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. And, Michelle, uh, can you give us the uh, Fairfax uh, Cryobank uh, website? Sure. It's pretty easy. It's www.fairfaxcryobank.com. <laughs> you know, you have no idea how all of you have great URLs. Uh, I have uh, come to dread what I call ugly URLs now on this show because it, you try to think, how am I going to say this in a way that people could possibly uh, get there? Yes, so thank you all for having for, for having great URLs as well as for being our guest today on Creating a Family. And also thanks to our audience for being here today. And I will see you guys next week. Thank you. Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's Employee of the Month, two months in a row. Leave a message at the... Hi, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. I just had a new idea for our song about the Name Your Price tool. So when it's like, tell us what you want to pay, hey, 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 and the trombone goes, blah, 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 and you say, we'll help you find coverage options to fit your budget. Then we just all do finger snaps while a choir goes, savings coming at ya, savings coming at ya. Yes? No? Maybe? Anyway, see your practice tonight. I got new lyrics for the rap break. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Let's say you just bought a house. Bad news is, you're one step closer to becoming your parents. You'll proudly mow the lawn. Ask if anybody noticed you mowed the lawn. Tell people to stay off the lawn. Compare it to your neighbor's lawn. And complain about having to mow the lawn again. Good news is, it's easy to bundle home and auto through Progressive and save on your car insurance. Which, of course, will go right into the lawn. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company, affiliates, and other insurers. Discount not available in all stages or situations.